The Malayalis now suing the force, claiming officers breached their duty of care for the baby by leaving him at the scene of a domestic violence attack. 12 hours for police to actually go looking for the child, despite the repeated pleas. Welcome back. I'm Cassie and this is Wicked World. The story I have for you today takes place in Australia and it's honestly one of the biggest police failures I've ever seen. Though I honestly don't even know if I want to call it a police failure or just their utter disregard for this little boy's safety. This is the story of Charlie Mullaly. Charlie Malele was born on May 18, 2012, to his mother, Tamika Malele, in Broome, Western Australia. Charlie was known to be a lovely baby who was always happy, and sadly, baby Charlie was only 10 months old at the time of his death. On March 19, 2013, Charlie's grandfather, Ted Malele, had a birthday party. And after that, around 10.30, Tamika and Charlie went to meet up with Tamika's boyfriend at a friend's house. His name was Mervyn Bell. There had been a rumor going around that Tamika's boyfriend, Mervyn Bell, had cheated on her the week before when she had been in Perth. So she decided she needed to confront him about this. When she did, Mervyn erupted and screamed at Tamika, calling her names. So Tamika decided at this point it was time for her to leave. She took Charlie in his carriage and began to walk home. However, Mervyn had been following behind her closely in his car. He was still mad that Tamika had embarrassed him at a friend's house. He had been the one that was supposedly cheating, but she had embarrassed him by asking about it. When he caught up to Tamika, Mervyn got out of his car and brutally attacked Tamika before stripping her naked and then leaving her bruised and bloodied on the side of a road in Broome. Upon witnessing the assault, a neighbor who also happened to be a nurse screamed at Mervyn to get off of Tamika. She then called Tamika's father as well as the police. Mervyn, however, would flee right after this before the police were able to get there. When the West Australia police did arrive, they found Tamika visibly distressed and huddling under her neighbor's carport. She was bloodied all over and wrapped in a borrowed bedsheet. Now, Tamika's dad, Ted, had arrived around the same time the police did, and he was yelling at them that they needed to go arrest Mervyn. But the police were not listening, and they were not treating Tamika like she was a victim of a horrible crime. Rather, like she was a witness, and they were pressing her for details right then and there. Bloodied, bruised, and half-naked, they wanted to know the details instead of bringing her to the hospital. One of Tamika's eyes even had blood in it, which signified that she likely had a head wound. Tamika already did not trust the police. So angry with how she was being treated, as well as embarrassed that she was half-naked standing in the middle of a street where she knew a lot of people, Tamika began to scream and swear at the police officers. This soon turned into her spitting at them and then trying to flee. The officers ended up taking Tamika to the ground before putting her in the back of the police cruiser. And the thing is, they did not even need to question Tamika at the time. They already had another witness, the nurse, who was a neighbor who had seen the attack. Ted was begging the police to let them help him calm his daughter down. But instead, he was charged with obstructing the police. He was only trying to help. 
Tamika would later be charged with assaulting an officer. The officers decided that they were going to take Tamika directly to the police station instead of the hospital. But upon Ted's insistence, the police finally agreed that they would bring Tamika to the hospital. Ted, however, not trusting them, given what had already happened that night, decided he was going to follow in his car to make sure they got his daughter the proper medical care. Now, before Ted got in his car to follow the police, he had been holding little Charlie, and he asked the female officer if she could take him and watch him. But she didn't. Instead, Charlie was given to Mervyn's cousin, who happened to live on the same street. When Tamika was finally brought to the hospital and treated, the doctor said had she not gotten medical attention for her injuries pretty soon, they could have been fatal. Her injuries included a lacerated kidney, broken collarbone, broken ribs, a bruised spleen, and a badly bruised face, back, and stomach. Now, while Tamika was being treated at the hospital with her father, Ted, alongside her, Mervyn had gone back to his cousin's house and convinced the cousin to give him baby Charlie, saying that he was going to bring him to his grandfather. So when Ted went to pick Charlie up a little while later, around midnight, he was not there. Panicked, Ted returned to the hospital where Tamika was because he knew there was a police officer that was watching his daughter. He informed this officer that Mervyn had taken Charlie and that it was urgent that they start looking for him right away because he had a bad feeling that Mervyn was going to hurt or kill the child. And what the officer replied back to Ted was absolutely unbelievable. He said, well, how many cars do you think we've got? We've only got two. One is tied up here, guarding your daughter in the hospital, and the other one's back at the station, tied up doing paperwork. Since it was apparent that this officer was not going to help him, Ted left and went to the Broome Police Department to tell them they needed to help look for his grandson, Charlie. Police officers later claimed that while Ted was at the station, he was drunk and belligerent. Ted, however, said he had not had a drink in 30 years. So needless to say, they did not take him seriously and did nothing to help him. Ted then called 000 in a desperate attempt for somebody to take him seriously. He told the operator that he was very concerned about his grandson, Charlie, and the operator told him that she would speak to the police sergeant back in Broome, and she would relay the seriousness of the situation. When the operator did just this and spoke to the police sergeant, the police sergeant told her, maybe we can get someone out there to help, because Ted had already obstructed the police for hours that night, he claimed. A little while later, Ted would receive an incoherent text message from Mervyn. It said, Talk to us. I'm putting welfare on the both of yous. Can't even look after your own grandchild. What now? Popo coming for yous? Ha ha. Ted immediately brought this to police in hopes that they could track Mervyn's cell phone and then, therefore, find Charlie. However, police did not follow up on the text message, saying that the $800 to use the mobile network search technology to locate the pair was not available for the incident. Ted told them that he was more than happy to pay for the $800. Then they told him it would take too long. And when Ted asked the police sergeant to just read the text message that he had received from Mervyn, he refused and brushed Ted off, telling him to come back in the morning and speak to the Aboriginal liaison officer. They also told Ted at this time that he needed to stop ringing 000. So the distraught grandfather returned home, thinking there was nothing else that he could do that night since nobody was willing to listen to him. The police would later claim that Ted had called the station after that, telling them that everything was fine, that he had spoken to Mervyn, 
Charlie was fine and they didn't need to look anymore, which was anything but true. Police did not file a missing persons report for Charlie, saying that it was common in Aboriginal groups for multiple family members to watch after a child. They also said they did not know about the assault on Tamika and clearly not giving a damn that Mervyn had a violent criminal past. Had any of the officers read any part of Ted's complaint, they would have known that Mervyn was not a family member and he was not supposed to have Charlie. Ted returned to the police station first thing the very next morning to see where the investigation was, if they had found his grandson. But nobody was looking for Charlie. He had been missing for more than six hours at this point, and nothing was being done. Police wouldn't even contact Mervyn's cousin, the one who was watching after Charlie, until 10 o'clock in the morning. At 12.57 p.m., 13 hours after Charlie had originally gone missing, Broome police finally issued an alert about the little boy to all the local police districts. We'll be right back. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. But the initial report that went out had the incorrect license plate number for the car that Mervyn was driving. So this further hindered the investigation. And somehow Tamika was able to discharge herself from the hospital, even though she had such severe injuries. She wanted to go out there and look for her son. However, her injuries would prove to be so bad that she would have to readmit herself the following night. And believe it or not, at one point when Tamika and Ted were pretty much down on their hands and knees asking police to just do their job, they asked Tamika to go back to her house and get Charlie's birth certificate so that she could prove that Mervyn was not his biological father. Like it matters. And sadly, during the entire time that Charlie was missing, Mervyn Bell had been spotted by multiple members of the public. He had been acting erratically and in a concerning way. Several people even contacted the police to tell them that they had seen Mervyn carrying a limp baby around. But even then, the police didn't act. And since this had happened in other jurisdictions and the Broom police had not put out an alert yet, they were not notified. Mervyn had driven Charlie almost a thousand kilometers or 600 miles from Broom to the Fortescue Roadhouse. Mervyn and Charlie arrived there around 1.30 p.m. on March 20th. Mervyn then took Charlie's lifeless body from the car and walked into the roadhouse where he then put Charlie down on a table where a man was eating a meal and asked someone to call an ambulance. Mervyn then began performing CPR on Charlie, and he proclaimed to everyone around him that all the injuries on Charlie's body that he had from head to toe were all accidental. The man who had been sitting at the table where Mervyn had laid down Charlie's body said that he noticed Charlie was wet all over, had significant bruising all over his entire body, a large welt in the center of his forehead, and a burn mark in the middle of his chest that was peeling. He also said there was some sort of bad smell coming from the little boy's body, but he could not identify what it was. 
When paramedics arrived, Charlie was not breathing and he had no pulse. He was then declared dead. Charlie had suffered numerous broken bones, including to his arm and leg. He also had a brain injury, third degree burns, and he had been sexually assaulted. When Mervyn was arrested, he told police that the reason he had taken Charlie was because he wanted to bring him to his father's family near Geraldton. But once the baby had accidentally gotten injured, he was too afraid to take him back to Tamika. But at the same time, he never thought to take the seriously injured baby to the hospital because he didn't think he required medical attention. Mervyn tried to say that the bruises on Charlie's body had been caused when he had fallen out of a moving car. Mervyn said he was going around a roundabout when he hit a curb and suddenly the door flew open and Charlie fell out. Most ridiculous story ever, but okay. Mervyn said when this happened, he panicked, became upset, and even started to cry. He was so upset that he had injured the little boy, he said, and just cradled him in his arms. He tried to comfort him, but did not check to see if he had any injuries, he claimed. After this incident, Mervyn said that he then wrapped Charlie in a blanket and put him on the floor of the car. They continued to drive, and then later when the sun came up, they decided to stop at a few swimming spots because it had become very hot out. He said at a swimming hole in Caratha, he had placed the little boy on some hot rocks, and that's how he had gotten the burns to his body. Now, it was in the high 90s Fahrenheit, or the high 30s Celsius. Mervyn claimed that he then put Charlie into the water to try to soothe his burns. There had also been security footage of Mervyn going to buy some groceries, including beer. He claimed that he was there mostly to buy some chocolate milk and an orange for the little boy that he was going to feed to him later when he woke up. After this, Mervyn's story was that he took Charlie to a beach in Dampier. However, Charlie wanted nothing to do with it, and he just wanted to lay there and sleep. He then took Charlie to yet another swimming spot near the Fortescue River. Here, he said the little boy's head slipped underwater, and then after that, he just wouldn't breathe. Mervyn said that while he himself was underwater for about 20 seconds, he felt a kick to his leg, and when he came back up, the baby was face first in the water. Mervyn Bell went to trial at the end of 2014, and he still maintained that he would have never hurt the little boy. Mervyn's trial was heard by a judge sitting without a jury because it was earlier ruled that the evidence would be too graphic and confronting for a jury. More than 100 photographs of Charlie's little body were shown as evidence in court. A forensic doctor testified that the bruising and abrasions to Charlie's body were likely caused by blunt force impact while his broken thigh bone and arm bone were caused by some sort of mechanical twisting. The forensic doctor also told the courtroom that Charlie's cause of death could not be determined. And this does not happen very often, he said, only in about one to 2% of cases. He believes that in addition to Charlie's injuries, he also could have died from dehydration, hyperthermia, or heat stroke. The court also heard from a burns consultant who said that Charlie had appeared to have suffered contact burns and scald-type injuries. The doctor said an injury to Charlie's lower back was consistent with hot water being poured or splashed on him. She also said that Charlie's injuries appeared to be different in their type, appearance, and maybe timing. Now, Mervyn's lawyer was saying that there was no motive for all the injuries caused to Charlie, except maybe the fact that he was a little bit upset with his family. But he didn't believe that Mervyn would all of a sudden decide to get revenge by taking his anger out on little Charlie. 
A neighbor of Mervyn's testified in court, and she said that Mervyn had told her that the baby's family had no idea what he was capable of, and they were going to get hurt. The neighbor also said that in the hours before Charlie had been kidnapped, Mervyn had visited her home, and he had been very angry and acting erratic. Mervyn told this neighbor that Tamika's family had no idea what they were in for. The defense also tried to say that Mervyn's judgment might have been impacted by sleep deprivation. A specialist in sleep disorders testified that Mervyn had not slept in 24 hours, which meant there was a potential for impairment of decision-making, planning, and also judgment. However, the doctor said it was impossible to quantify the impact of the sleep deprivation. Mervyn's defense also tried to say that the 27-year-old had suffered a traumatic life. He had lost his father when he was only a baby, and then his mother when he was five. Before her death, Mervyn's mother had dated a violent man as well, who beat his mother, him, and his sister, even striking Mervyn in the head once with a hammer. As Mervyn grew older, he turned to drugs and abusing his partner, his defense said. But the judge ultimately found him guilty, and prior to his sentencing, victim impact statements were read. Part of Tamika's statement said, Words cannot comprehend the pain, the hurt, and how grief-stricken a mother feels. My son was murdered. Instead of watching him grow up, we go and visit Charlie Boy at his grave every birthday. And the baby's grandfather, Ted, wrote in his victim impact statement that he partially felt responsible for Charlie's death. The grandfather was supposed to watch Charlie on the night that he was kidnapped. But he had told Tamika that since Charlie had a cold, she should take him out with her. He said, I now feel like if I had babysat Charlie Boy, he would be alive today. He was a lovely kid, always happy. The impact of the incident has torn through my family. My daughter is not the same. That beautiful soul is starting to diminish. My daughter is grief-stricken, and I feel powerless. I do not know what to do. On December 12, 2014, Mervyn Bell was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum non-parole period of 27 years. In sentencing him, the judge said that Mervyn's crime was one of the most evil he had ever seen. And a few months after that, Mervyn was tried and then sentenced to five years in jail for the attack on Charlie's mother, Tamika. Now, police were still upholding the charges against Tamika, even after she lost her baby boy. She was actually convicted and given a 12-month prison sentence, which was suspended for 12 months as well. In sentencing, the judge or the magistrate said that even though he considered assaulting public officers a serious offense, he also considered what Tamika had been through, and he just couldn't jail her. He said, if there's ever a time for a court to be merciful, it's on this matter today. So don't give her any time at all then. Shortly after his murder, Charlie's family traveled to the Fortescue Roadhouse to erect a plaque to commemorate his short life. It features a brass engraved plaque and is mounted on a structure built with rocks from Beagle Bay on the Dampier Peninsula. And while in prison, Mervyn Bell was assaulted by two fellow prisoners who hit him in the head with a hammer. These two prisoners were later acquitted on the charges, though. Then on September 9, 2015, Mervyn Bell was found dead in the prison showers. He was believed to have died from self-inflicted wounds. And Tamika said that her family has felt relief ever since hearing about Mervyn's death. Now they don't have to worry about one day him being released. They just wish he had had to suffer more, like Charlie did. In 2019, the Mullaly family requested an inquest into Charlie's death. However, this was later declined by the state coroner. 
The case was then investigated by the Corruption and Crime Commission, the CCC. The Mullaly family had made a complaint alleging that Charlie's death could have been avoided had the police acted in a timely and professional manner. In its report, the CCC said, while there was a delayed and ineffective response by officers on the night of Charlie's disappearance, it was impossible to know if a more rapid response team could have saved the baby. It ultimately found that there was not sufficient evidence to establish serious misconduct on part of the officers that were involved. Unhappy with the CCC findings, the Malalis took their fight to Western Australia Supreme Court. They argued for an inquest to determine if Charlie's death was caused or contributed to by any action of a member of the police force. But in mid-2020, a judge decided against this plea as well. He too was not convinced that there was enough evidence that police had failed to protect the little boy. And it wasn't until June of 2022 that the Western Australia government finally apologized to Tamika and her father, Ted. They were also pardoned on their criminal charges after they had undergone the unthinkable. After a near decade fight for justice, the Malali family got the acknowledgement they had longed for for so many years. Outside state parliament, Tamika said that the apology meant a lot to her and she could tell that they had meant it. She says that they heard the truth about what had happened nine years ago and it touched them. She's more forgiving than I would be. The funeral services for baby Charlie Mullaly were held at the Pinaroo West Chapel on April 19th, 2013. Well, thank you for listening to all of Charlie's story today. This case is absolutely infuriating. The police did not care at all to help Charlie and his family. It's deplorable to think that people who are meant to protect can act in such a shameful manner. And it took them nine years to even apologize to the family. And that's not even to mention the fact that Charlie had undergone unimaginable torture for those 16 hours that he had been missing. And it was at the hands of Mervyn, somebody who is supposed to care for him. This story is just unbelievable in so many ways. So if you do like true crime and you want to hear from me, then don't forget to hit that subscribe button below. And turn on your notifications too, so you'll know when I upload a new video, which is two to three times every week. Thanks for watching A Wicked World today. Until next time, take care guys. Bye. Thank you for being patrons of A Wicked World. Adina, Alana, Ali, Amanda, Amy, Angela, Angie, Brandy, Carrie, Catherine, and Cecilia. Celia Cruz, Claire, Danielle, Danny J, Drew, Eric, Frank, Georgia, Haley, Hanorama, Hannah, Jackie, Jen, Jennifer, Josie, Kara, Christy, MJ Kelly, Neoma, Nikki, Owen, Ray, Robin, Sharon, Starlet Sky, Lori, Marion, Mary, Mel, Mimi, Susan, Tamara, Tammy B, Tammy S, Tracy UK, and Whisper216. You guys rock. Now, there's even more of a wicked world on Patreon. So check it out at patreon.com slash a wicked world or use the Patreon app. You'll have access to exclusive videos each month and more. Any support truly helps to make sure the victims never get forgotten and to highlight the shortcomings of society associated with each case. Do you have a suggestion for a case you'd like to see me cover? If so, send me an email at awickedworldtruecrime at gmail.com.